Well, good evening, everyone. For those who are visitors, my name's Simon. I'm one of the ministers here, and I'm delighted to be sharing with you this evening. If you've got a Bible, please will you turn to the passage that was just read for us uh, at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And uh, we're going to look at a couple of verses, and I'm going to make a couple of points. But let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are a speaking God, and we pray you'll speak with, to us this evening. And thank you that you're a personal and therefore a meeting, an encountering God, and we pray that we would meet with you and encounter you this evening. And thank you, Lord, that you're a transforming God, and we pray, Lord, that you would work in our lives and you'd transform us. Lord, you know that there are areas in our lives that we've battled with, struggled with for so long. Lord, let tonight be a night where we know a real breakthrough in that area. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I grew up in a Christian home, but it didn't really take. In fact, it didn't take at all. And though I believed in God, uh, always believed in God, you know, sort of from the womb it seems, he was part of our family, he was talked about, but I never knew him. And I, un I, I had this sense that God was just angry with me, and he was out to get me, and that somehow if I thought something wrong, did something wrong, put a foot wrong that I was going to be in trouble and I lived with this real sense of dread in this God who I didn't know. And as a result, rather than come nearer to him to find out more about him, I withdrew from him. And as soon as I was old enough to say to my dad, not coming to church with you, I stopped going to church. And uh, then into my teenage years, I went about as far away from God as one brought up in a Christian family, can go. Church just seemed irrelevant. God just seemed distant, and religion was all about prohibition and frustration. And as a young man with testosterone pumping around my system, I didn't want anything to do with religion. But the thing is that God relentlessly pursued me. I turned my back on God, but God never turned his back on me. In fact, God went out of his way to turn me back to him. And there were numerous occasions when it just seemed God was pursuing me and wouldn't let me go. In every single one of those, I wasn't looking for him, I was looking to get away. On one occasion, I was sat in a pub on a Friday night and I was chatting up this attractive young lady. You know, come, you know, come with me and I'll show you the way to heaven kind of thing. <laughs> and she just said, you need God. I thought, what do you mean I need God? It's Friday night. Friday night's not a God night, that's Sunday. And I remember almost shaking with this. And I got up and I walked down, a, I found a subway, it was in North Somerset, I know exactly where it was, and sat there and had a cigarette and thought, what on earth was that about? Crazy girl, you need God. 
Another occasion I was in Bristol and been at the boat races and I was walking past a guy who just sat there playing the guitar. He, you know, looked scruffy and I thought, well, he's just playing. He's all right. I'll give him a quid or something. That was a lot of money back then. I was being generous and uh, went to give him a quid. They were paper in those days, you know, and um, he said, I don't want your money, but you can't keep running from God. I thought, can't keep, do you want to smack in the gobble? <laughs> what is this all about? Can't keep running from God? I was in a sordid context and God spoke to me. He said, you don't belong here. What are you doing? And I remember jumping up, nothing on, into the corner of the wall and wrapping myself in a blanket and waiting out the night. God has spoken to me, you don't belong here. He had something better for me. God pursued me. I'd come out of the army and I had a plaster cast from my neck to my groin. Couldn't move, but I was in a in a, a pool club trying to play pool, which isn't easy when you're all plastered up. And uh, there was a chap and he, he said, what happened to you? I said, oh, I got some issue or whatever. And he said, uh, I know who can heal you. By this stage, I'd had enough of all this. I said, what, God? He went, yeah, would you like me to pray for you? I thought, no, I don't want you to pray for me and I don't want anything to do with you and I don't want anything to do with God. I was working as a butcher and a, this woman kept coming into the shop and smiling at me nicely. I, I thought she liked me. I later found out she was married to the guy in the pool club and they were praying for me every week. I'd see her in the town and think, she's smiling. I, and she'd see me and think, we're gonna get you. The thing was, it was God was pursuing me. And then finally, lots of these, I was literally sat on a fence at a cricket ground. I was sat on a fence having a cigarette and I had a, a, a vision of me teaching children the story of Jonah and saying to the kids, you can't run away from God. And I remember saying, God, leave me alone. I don't want anything to do with you. And I'm never going back to church. There was a church, an Anglican church, where, right in front of the vision, and I felt I'd say, go there. I thought, I'm never going. I'm certainly never going to an Anglican church. My family are Baptists. True. And then one day I had a row with a friend in my, in his car, and I was in his car, and he insulted me. And it was a case of hitting him or getting out. But he was driving, so I said, stop. And I got out. And I was outside an Anglican church. I heard this singing coming out and I was sort of inexorably wooed to it and drawn to it. I hadn't been in a church for so long and certainly never one like that. And when I went into the church, it was full, which was amazing for a start. And there was young people and that, I wasn't used to that. And they were worshiping God as if he was real and present and good. And I knew that they knew him. I knew I didn't. I was overwhelmed by it. I began, actually began shaking at the back. I needed ministry. <laughs> Instead, I left. But all week, the singing was with me. 
The following week, my mate said, you're at the pub tonight. I said, I'm not at the pub tonight. I'm going to church. <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah. I washed my long hair. I had lovely long hair. Put on my best waistcoat and cowboy boots and went to church to meet with God who'd been in my head all week. And the preacher, John Simons, who texted me this afternoon, lovely old rector, he's now in his 90s, he preached about Jesus' love and his sacrifice for us and his desire to forgive us our sins and all we needed to do is trust in him and he would give, there'd be an exchange, my filthy life for his beautiful life, my unrighteousness for his righteousness. And at the end there was an invitation. I'd never seen anything like it, but I went forward and knelt and was prayed for by a posh solicitor. I remember, I've never forgotten. And I, I was a big tough guy, but I just wept as God met with me and washed me and turned me around. And when I got up and turned around, the woman who kept smiling at me was sat there in the church and the bloke from the pool club was sat there in the church and the woman from the pub who'd said, you need God, was sat there in the church. They're all crying. I was crying. That was 30 odd years ago. I'd never gotten over it. It's not easy having been a vicar, but why am I a vicar? Because I met God all those years ago. I met him a lot since. And he takes lives and he turns them around. And he was the God who chased after me. And the truth is he's chasing after everyone. It may not be so dramatic. They may not have stories like that. They may think, well, actually, I was the one pursuing God. I was the one seeking to find answers to these questions that were nagging away at me. Who gave you the questions? Who put the longing for the quest in you anyway? But God was pursuing me and God is pursuing you. The first thing I want to say then is this. I've only got two points. You're all right. God is pursuing you. He's the God who pursues. Look at the text here, 7 verse 1. It says, since we have these promises, dearly beloved. The NIV says dear friends, but the Greek word is not philatoi, which would mean dear friends, it's agapetoi, the much loved ones. Since we have these promises, you who are greatly loved. What promises? Look back at verse 16 of chapter 6. We are the temple of the living God. He's writing to the Corinthians. They're surrounded by pagan temples. And he said, here's, here's the glory in all this. You're the temple. And God doesn't live in buildings made with hands. God lives in you. He chooses to condescend and contract and live in us, if only we'll receive him. As God says, I will live in them and walk among them, and I'll be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, he says, come out from them and, and be clean, and don't mess around, and don't give yourself over to sin. Verse 18, and I'll be your father, and you'll be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. What a thing. Isn't that amazing? There are seven things there that God wills. What does God want? This is what God wants. This is what God wills. This is what he's working at. I will live with them. I will walk with them. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. I will welcome them. I will father them. And they will be sons and daughters. 
It's like a kind of marriage vow, marriage covenant, marriage promises. And it's what God makes to the world. It's what he wants. What does God want? He wants us. A wonderful theologian called Karl Barth, who I spent a few years reading and Dan Ames has spent a decade with, he wrote this about God. He says, God doesn't will to be God for himself. He doesn't want to be God alone with himself. He wills as God to be for us and with us who are not God. He does not will to be himself in any other way than in relationship with us. What does God want? First and foremost, he wants to be with us. God isn't pie in the sky when we die. An old country and western song, God is watching us from a distance. No, he's not. He's not stood at a distance far off. He's the one moving towards us and seeking constantly to close the gap. God isn't seeking to hide from us. It was Adam and Eve who hid from God, not God who hid from them. We're always hiding from God, but God is always wanting to reveal, to disclose, to make himself known. God is not playing hide and seek. He's playing seek and find. God isn't indifferent. He's not, indif- he's not indignant. You are Beloved, beloved, since we have these promises, you are beloved. The American author Louis Giglio writes, God is always seeking you. Every sunset, every clear blue sky, every ocean wave, the starry hosts of night, he blankets each one with the invitation, here I am. Here I am. Not here I am, go away. Here I am, come closer. The whole creation is God's invitation. It's God pursuing us. God rolling out a red carpet in time and space to meet with us. That's what creation exists for. It has a purpose. It is the backdrop, the context, the the bridal suite for an encounter with those that he wants to spend forever with. Beautiful and wonderful in its own way. It exists for a purpose, as a context for us to be with him. The incarnation is God pursuing us in history and geography and specificity in, the humani- in our humanity. He becomes like one of us to make us like him. The crucifixion is God pursuing us, chasing us through death and hell to bring us to heaven and eternal life. And despite all the barriers that we erect, God is the one seeking to navigate around them, to know us and to love on us. That is the presupposition of the Bible. I think that's the... That's the the watermark, the water frank on every page. What, what is the book about? You know, you read these obscure things in there. You're like hanging around in Leviticus, which I just opened up, and you think, what is that? Regulations about mildew. 
cleansing from infectious skin diseases. You know, what, I mean, what are all these laws? What are all these rules? What are all these statutes? What are all these like weird things that people have to wear strange kit and do strange things and, and they offer sacrifices in the blood and animal? What's, what is all this? And we can get bogged down in it. It just feels sort of so strange and alien to our world. It's all a bit of a kind of religious verbal. But it gets untangled when we understand that it is God pursuing us from the beginning to the end. And these are just, these are just in, insights on the way. God working out how we can be with him. Because he loves us. He so loves us, says St. John. He is for us. Before lockdown, I did a funeral for an amazing man called Richard Stanley. He'd uh, started up a, a number of beautiful charities that changed people's lives. And he was a, a documentary filmmaker. And we just happened to, we became friends. We, we meet each other in coffee shops. And one day he came over to my table and said, here, this is a poem that I like. I went, oh, okay, I'll read it. And um, thanks very much. And a conversation, you know, stuck when we became fr friends in a coffee shop. And then one day I met him and he said, I'm dying of cancer. I said, oh, man. And we became close to connecting. He let me know when he was having his chemo and all of that. And then one day his daughter contacts me and said he died. And I went round to meet the family to prepare for the funeral. I said, tell me some things about him. What was he like? They said, oh, amazing guy. And, you know, tell me some stories. And then one stuck with me. He said, the, the, the daughter who I was talking to said, my sister had just got engaged. And she'd gone to a rock concert uh, down at sort of Nebworth. You know, it was like 40,000, you know, rockers. And... Uh, when she got back, she realized she'd lost her engagement ring. And told her dad. And dad says, don't worry about it. And he rang around all his friends. And he hired lots of metal detectors. And him and all his mates piled down. He said, here are maps. Tell me where you stayed, which concerts you went to, where you stood in relation to the stadium, where the toilets were, where the shops were, where your tent was. And they went down. And by the end of the day, miracle of miracles, the father found the ring. My honestly, it was almost unbelievable. But he did it. And at his funeral, I said, That's what a beautiful father. That's just like God. God says, I'll be a father to you. What kind of a father are you going to be to me? That kind of father just pursues you in love and seeks to rescue you because you're beloved. So that's the first thing that when I was reading this this week just stood out to me, that we're beloved and he wills to be with us and he wills to walk with us and he wills to love on us and he wills to be our father. And, he, and in there it says that he wills that, that we would come away from sin. That isn't heavy. I used to think that those sort of things when I was growing up meant that God was against me having fun. No, it's because God wants the best for me. And he knows that there are some contexts 
that actually are going to take away. They're going to diminish. They're going to tarnish. And they're going to cause real issues for me with him. That's why he says that. God is pursuing you. Secondly, and briefly, we need to pursue the pursuer. Let's pursue the pursuer. How do we do that? Well, it says in 7 verse 1, if you've got your Bible, have a look. It says, in light of this, that we're beloved, that God has willed all this stuff, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of our body and of our spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. You see, I grew up in a church context where it was all about do's and don'ts, right and wrong. And, it, and, and religion was simply about fear that God was going to get you if you did, said, or thought anything wrong. No one ever framed it. They may have done, but I never heard it. That actually, that God, want, God wants the best for me. And that's why he says, this isn't good for you. Don't do it. It's not good. It'll mess you up. This stuff will mess with you. And it's because he loves us. Not because he's some sort of killjoy. He was killed to give us joy. He's not a killjoy. He wants the best for us. If you visit one of the royal homes, Windsor or Bucky Palace or Sandring or wherever, when the queen is there in residence, a royal flag is flown, isn't it? And you can be sure that it's in the diary that those who are managing the house know, you know, the Queen's coming next week, so what are we going to do? Well, let's just chill on the dill until she turns up. Do you think that's going to happen? <laughs> They're going to be cleaning everything, aren't they? I mean, it's probably always spotless, but when they know in a week the Queen is here, then they go into kind of over... You know, overdrive on tidying the thing up, cleaning everywhere. Do you think there is a slight pong from any toilet? I mean, seriously. I mean, they're cleaning the gravel drive with toothbrushes and, you know. And the King of Kings says he's in residence with us. That's what the text says. We who've said yes to him, We've said yes to his yes to us. He comes and we become his temple. We become his holy habitation, his residence, his palace. You ever thought about that? You are the palace of the king. And we need to make him feel at home. And there are things in our lives that we need to clean up. Get the old toothbrush out on. Get rid of the pong. And Paul here says two things. There are two kind of commands. Don't tense when you see a command. Say, great, it's a command. God wants me to do something so I can get more of God. That's how we've got to see it. And the first is we've got to, well, remove and improve. That's where we're going. What he doesn't say, what isn't there is reprove. He's not having a go. He's not laying it on thick. He's, he's just inviting us to come closer. First, he says, remove. 
Katharizo, wash away, put away, clean away. Cleanse ourselves, he says. Let us cleanse ourselves. I like the fact that Paul includes himself in it, which means he's still got cleansing in himself to do. It's encouraging, isn't it? He says, come on, guys. The king's come to stay. Let's cleanse ourselves. And cleanse ourselves implies that we have agency, that we have moral responsibility, that we, having been forgiven, having the power of the Spirit in our lives, having the blood of Jesus shed to cover our sins, we actually can get clean. I don't want you to feel I'm having a go this evening. I want you to feel encouraged. There are things in your life that have been there for a long time that pong a bit. And they can be sorted. Let us cleanse ourselves by the Spirit, living according to the Word, walking in the opposite direction to that thing that we know is wrong. And we've got to do it ourselves. We're in a church, and we've got a community and a family, and we will pray with one another and support one another and encourage one another, but ultimately, other people are not going to be judged for the wrong in our life. We are, and it's us who've got to look at our own mess. We're good at pointing it out. So often, we we judge people from our strengths to their weaknesses, but we've got to say, compare from Christ's strength to our weakness, and then to work on that stuff. Protestants often balk at this sort of thing and they think, you know, grace. You're undermining Protestant foundations about grace and faith. Listen, justification is by grace through faith. But sanctification is a grace. There is faith, but there's also hard work. It just is. And that's why the New Testament's got several hundred imperatives, commands, instructions, Stuff for us to do. Stuff for us to do. And I think that this is a season when we've got to be doing stuff. Before we can remove this, we've got to examine ourselves. We've got to examine ourselves before God. We've got to ask Him. We've got to examine ourselves before His Word. We've got to look to the Spirit and say, shine a spotlight on me. What is in me? that you'd rather not have there. I want this holy habitation, this palace fit for a king. You've got to show me, Lord. Sometimes I'm so blind to my own mess. So I've been thinking about this this week, and so I decided to ask four people. I asked God, I asked my wife, I asked one of my close friends, and one of my close colleagues, who's also a close friend. (laughs) And I said, what's wrong with me? What is my besetting sin that you can see? I want to tell you, God was the kindest. (laughs) His answer was the shortest. He was just kind. I went, ah, he's so good. My wife, that might have been a mistake, but she just began, we were in the car, and she said, no, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this. I said, go on then. She said, all right then. And I did all tumble. Oh no, thanks very much. No, that'll do, that'll do. Just three. Stop at three, not 13, you know. Stop. She's had to put up with me all these years. And I asked her, my friend's colleague and someone, a friend elsewhere. It was interesting, the overlap in what they said. I thought, ah, I've got to work on this stuff. 
We've got to open ourselves up before those that we trust to speak into our lives and to help us shine a spotlight on us. And then having seen these things, we've got to work on these things. He says, remove every defilement. And in the Greek, the word every there means every. Like all of them. Like any and everything that's there. It's actually an interesting word, the word there for defilement. It means smear. Whatever you're smeared with, got to go away. And it says, of body and spirit. Not just the external stuff. Not just stuff we do with our limbs or our eyes or our tongue. Not the stuff others might perceive. Not external only. We've got to do the body stuff. And then it says body and spirit, the stuff inside. Where we think and feel and desire. And those sins, evident ones, maybe the hidden ones on the inside. Because, and we've got to be consistent outside and in. And we've got to look like the Lord. In COVID lockdown, I did a, a lot of small DIY jobs. I was really impressed with myself. And, you know, I painted this and that. And I oiled locks and repaired handles and glued and screwed stuff and drawers. Honestly, I thought if you've got a can of WD-40 and Gorilla Glue, you can be a, you know, you can do anything, really. <laughs> All these things I could see. But unbeknown to me at the time, there were jackdaws chipping away under our eaves. And they pulled out a wire mesh that was there to block them. And then they got in into the you know, roof cavity. And then they had a nest. Once they got a nest, Rent-A-Kill won't remove them. A nest and the little... Then they laid their eggs and they hatched and... Suddenly I got this screeching and scratching and flipping jackdaws freaking out above my head. Swooping in, fighting outside the window. The thing was that wire mesh I saw on the floor a month or two before they moved in. Is there anything in our lives where we've taken away a barrier We've allowed the jackdaws in. They've set up home and hatched their eggs and the chicks are freaking out. We've got to wipe it away. And then, having removed, we've got to improve. The Greek word there, epiteleo, means to complete, means to finish. But fortunately, it's a participle. It's a kind of ongoing thing. You've got to do it, but it's not going to be done until we get to heaven. There is a process, but it's a process that we're working at. And it's a process that implies improvement. Improvement. We're justified in a moment. We're made right with God in a moment when we say yes to Jesus and positionally before God we are, it's just as if we'd never sinned we're declared righteous right with God judgment has passed from us heaven is opened up the spirit comes to live within us that happens at a crisis moment when we trust in him but then the rest of our life is a process living up to who we are perfecting Holiness, it says, in the fear of the Lord. What is holiness? Holiness is perfection, perfecting perfection. 
And who is the perfect one? It's Jesus. He's the holy one. Jesus says, be perfect as I am perfect. It's an echo of a verse found five times in the Old Testament. Be holy as I am holy, says God. And that isn't like beating us over the head. That's the most wonderful invitation. Honestly, you've got to flip this. It's an invitation to come and be like him. He's set up home. We've got to make him feel at home. We've got to be holy as he is holy. And you know, holiness is never dull, said C.S. Lewis. Nothing dull about holiness. God gives himself to us in fresh baked bread and wine. Not a pint of sour vinegar. There is joy in holiness. Jesus was the holiest human that ever lived. God in the flesh, the holiest human, and I think the overflowing with happiness, the most perfect human. Do you think Jesus was boring? Do you think Jesus was dull? Was Jesus religious? The most attractive being that ever existed. And the great irony is that tax collectors and sinners wanted to be with him, but the Pharisees, the falsely religious, didn't. And so God is pursuing us and comes to live with us and calls us to pursue after him, to pursue his nature and character in our life. And he's given us all that we need for that, a Christian community to help us and work with us, his presence by his spirit. Uh, we, we were led by Christopher and he then read to singing to the spirit to come. And then he read from Galatians about the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control and so on. And these are the things, the characteristics, the hallmarks of Jesus that are worked in us as we receive the spirit. But when the spirit comes, he'll show up stuff that's not so good. The pong in the loo and he'll say, come on. Bring that to me, receive forgiveness, and then turn around and walk in the opposite spirit. Body and spirit, everything that defiles, sorting it out, perfecting perfection, pursuing the perfect one. And this isn't religious, and this is not heavy, this is a fantastic adventure. I need to finish, I'm sorry I've gone on. This week the Olympics started and I love them. The world's best athletes coming together to compete and excel. Just wonderful and beautiful. You know, it's often claimed that it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert at something. It takes a, it takes a lot less time to become trapped by sin. <laughs> It's half a dozen times you're repeating something, it's stuck. But 10,000 hours to become an expert. And I read this this week, Dame Jessica Ennis, isn't she beautiful? She won the gold medal at 2012 Olympics in the heptathlon. And she said this, she said, I spent my whole life training. I spent my whole life training. She said, but between 2008 and 2012, those four years, the whole four years were looking towards the London Olympics. She said, I did 10,000 hours in four years of training. 
And then she said this, all the hard work was worth it. What, to get the gold? No, just to be able to compete at home. And then winning a gold is a dream come true. We're gonna be watching some Olympics. I hope, hope you're all gonna watch some of it because it's amazing. He's the best in the world at what they do, how beautiful. And they have put in hundreds and hundreds of hours so that they can shine in order to win gold. And they said it's worth it. God gave everything for us because he said we were worth it. And I want to encourage you, saints, and with this I end, I want to encourage you to pursue the pursuer and to work on stuff in your life and to examine it before the word of God. Maybe ask those closest to you so that we become more like him because he is worth it.